Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 62, to Psalm 62. And as you're turning, just to express appreciation to the congregation, um, we've uh, had a few distractions in the family, and I, on behalf of the whole family, really appreciate everyone's patience with us. Uh, I have found myself more scatty of mind than usual, and I appreciate your forbearance. Psalm 62 to the choir master, according to Jethunan, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust and extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increased, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Let us pray. O our Father and our God, we do ask that as we're together and your word is opened, that we might not be alone, but that we might know the presence and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We are not clever enough to wrest a blessing from your text. Uh, We cannot even encourage each other enough to know a blessing from heaven in our flesh. But your Spirit is mighty and able, and your Son is able to pour him out in power upon us. And so we do pray that our eyes might be opened our ears unstopped, and our lives transformed by your word and spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jedithun was appointed by David to serve as chief musician in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and chapter 25. This psalm was written by David under inspiration from the Holy Spirit for... Jethun's ministry to compose 
a, a musical score to go with it and also to sing. But the text of the psalm is a bit unusual. When we lay it in the balance against other psalms, there's something missing here that we're used to seeing in a psalm. It does not address God. It is reflective of David's thoughts to himself. And he does speak to fellows around him, but it does not give a prayer addressing the Lord directly. Psalm 62 is a musical testimony to something else. Uh, the elements of worship sometimes do that. They point to another in another direction in order to tie together the act of corporate public worship as we give back to God what He has first given to us. Psalm 62 is a musical testimony, I think, to preaching and teaching. David drank deep from the fountain of suffering in his life. And here he learns a life lesson. And he turns and he exhorts us to learn it as well from the heart. David presses our consciences with what God first taught him under inspiration. So in Psalm 62, the tradition of best preaching is highlighted for us. You see, there are different kinds of preachers in the world. There are some preachers who tell God all about us. Uh, the great uh, Anglican preacher, uh, John Donne, who's still famous today for his verse, uh, was a preacher like that. He, he turned to the Lord and, and told God all about his congregation. And, and sometimes he said some very good things about God. Other preachers, perhaps you've known these before, they tell you all about themselves. Uh, from their preaching, you learn more about them than you do about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Their prejudices, their values, their political views, you, you learn about their tastes and their feelings and their culture, but you don't learn so much about God. At a very basic level, the best of preachers go to the Word of God and from there, Tell us about God. And also speak to us of their own experience in and through His Word and Spirit. That is, they take that Word and they internalize it and they lead us by the hand in application so that we might not just have our minds filled, but that we might know how to live more like Christ because of His Word and Spirit. Here, David speaks to us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit from the fullness of his own Christian life. And what is his message? David tells us to look to the rock. To look to the rock for all our help in this life. You see, Psalm 62 teaches us, firstly, that trouble abounds in a fallen world. You have come in from a muggy heat. You have come in from the outside into the house of God and you have come together and you're enjoying the warmth and the fellowship of God's people. You're looking forward to the sermon being over and a little sandwich supper being served and more fellowship around the tables. And that's not a bad thing. But the world is not a warm and happy place 
The world is not a place where you warm your souls around the fire of God's word like we do in the house of God. David tells us in Psalm 62 in verse 3 that he faced a ruthless foe. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? David says. And so we know in a very vivid set of terminology that there were those that were striking him and and seeking to crush him and, and bring him by blows to the ground and undo his soul. And in a fallen world, this is no surprise. David is the focal point. He is at the focal point of the struggle of redemptive history in his own day and age. He is the one through whom the Messiah will come. He is the prophet king. He is the one who is most representing Jesus since the time of Moses and Abraham before him. David should not expect a lighter treatment from the surrounding world than that which he under inspiration prophesies his greater son will receive. Did he not say under inspiration in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The words on the lips of Jesus as he hung on the cross of Calvary were words that he was quoting from David, his great-grandfather, who knew something of the taste of that cup of bitterness, Not that he drank the wrath of God down to its dregs for our sin. No, that was for Jesus. But David stuck his finger in that cup and he knew its taste and smell. Is that not what the Apostle Paul tells us? That Christians have, as he strangely puts it, the privilege even of filling up the sufferings of Christ? That if our our great Savior, if, if the head of the body has suffered humiliation in this life, should we not also humble our own souls and not be shocked and overthrown by the difficulties of this life? Oh, we are Christians. But we're also Americans. And we know everything's supposed to get better. And we're supposed to be able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And, and we go from one triumph to another and in that upward mobility of the great American way. Right? Well, sort of sometimes. And then reality of a fallen world comes crashing in. And everything doesn't work just right. And we find ourselves one step forward and two steps back. It's a fallen world. And David faced a ruthless foe like his greater son would. But he goes on to tell us that there is a strange affection, a strange attraction that evil has for where it senses weakness. Verse 3 says, How long will you all attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. You know, as we would drive along the Scottish countryside, all of those little fences, that stone fences that separated 
uh, one field from one farm and another. They always looked to me like they were teetering and getting ready to fall down. You know, I guess that's because they were maybe a thousand years old or something. They weren't, but it just looked that way to the casual American driver. The evil ones seeking to undo King David, uh, they don't, uh, they don't find themselves attracted by the strong part of the wall. Uh, they don't find themselves gravitating to the middle of the field. They go to the weakest point. They, they sense, they, they smell, they taste it, and they go after it, and they are reaching for the weak points and the vulnerabilities of the king. That's a truism in a fallen world. Evil is always on the hunt. Evil seeks out and finds the weakest of prey. And David shows us here by his own testimony because he was the object of their sniffing and of their growling that even King David, the prophet king, even King David who foreshadowed the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, even King David who was the greatest of the kings, he had his good days and his bad days. He had his weak points and his vulnerabilities. And there was a time as he penned Psalm 62 under enormous emotional pressure as well as inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he speaks to you and says that it's all right and normal in your Christian life not always just to go from strength to strength. And it's just at that time in a fallen world that you need to be aware and you need to be realistic and recognize that not only did David face a a ruthless foe that smelled out his weaknesses, but so do you and so do I. And then he highlights one particular evil tendency on their part. He notes for us in in bold highlighting that evil loves to lie. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood, he says in verse 4. They bless with their mouths, but they inwardly curse. Now, we know something of this. We've all seen it. Evil prefers to concentrate. It prefers to concentrate its stench in falsehood. It loves a good lie. If there's ever been such a thing as a good lie. David, in other words, faced, if I can insult my own heritage, David faced a southern foe that smiled big on the outside and hit a knife ready to stab in the back. We need to recognize evil for what it is. It does not always come snarling and growling with claws and fangs exposed Evil does not always come walking at us relentlessly like the night of the living dead. Sometimes evil smiles and is perfumed and every hair is in order. And we need to watch out because they're not ultimately seeking our good. They love untruth. 
Such evil is on every hand in a fallen world. But David also teaches us here that in such a world, don't forget, God abounds all the more. Yes, evil abounds, but God abounds all the more in a world just like this. He says in verse 1, and then if it wasn't enough to say it up front, he says it again in verse 6. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress I shall not be shaken. Here is David. And I sense that the preacher is preaching to himself, which is not always a bad thing in a pastor. Oh, God can save. Uh, David was saved by God. And he affirms in verse 6 that God was the only source of his salvation. Uh, there was no other. He, is, he only is my rock and my salvation. Oh, there were many good things in David's life. He grew up in a good family. He had a not-so-bad first calling. You know, sheep smell, and they're a little odd at times, but, you know, it gave him time for reflection and contemplation and prayer. There were many benefits to being a shepherd. And David had been blessed richly, both on the field of battle and, and in his political and economic endeavors. But his salvation, his place and purpose and protection had come only from standing on the rock from the Lord our God. You see, he tells us God is solid as a rock. He says in verse 2, He only is my rock as well as my salvation. That means that everything rests on God. There is no other. God, on Him, rests my salvation and my glory, my rock, my refuge is the Lord. That's because God's got the power. And he says so bluntly in verse 11, once God has spoken, twice I heard this, that power belongs to God. And then in the next breath, the Holy Spirit carries him along from the thought of the, the abstract attribute of the power and might infinite of the eternal and unchangeable God to the central core gospel truth that He is a God of grace and of steadfast covenant love and that to You, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. You know, as a systematic theologian, I find nothing more irritating in presentations about the doctrine of God than that abstract, dead and dull, medieval, philosophical presentation of these disparate attributes that deity must logically possess. That's all very nice. God bless them. But is it not more interesting to look at those attributes and their interrelationship to one another because God is three persons in one essence. And not only do we see these attributes possessed by God the Father, but we also see them possessed by God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And they have this internal relationship one to another. And if you want to know what love is, the best place to find it, first and foremost, 
to ground all your not life is not in the eyes of the ones who sparkles to you, but it's in the eyes of the Father to the Son and the Father and the Son to the Holy Spirit. As you see the love of the Father for the Son and the way that spills over in their relationship to the bonding union on the level of being that we don't understand of the Spirit. We're made in the image of a personal God who relates one to another within the Godhead and so blesses us by choosing freely and fully to relate to us. And He didn't even have to. And once He did relate to us, having called us into being, creating us by the word of His power, we rebelled and He could have squashed us like a bug. And we would certainly deserve it. But He chose to love. He chose to bring glory to His name and honor in front of all the angels and cherubim and seraphim by loving the unlovable and by saving sinners like us. And it's the attributes of God in their relation one to another in His personal way that I find interesting. And so His power, the one whose name most often spoken is just that. Power is His name. He is also grace and mercy and love. And He pities us as a mother pities her children. God has the power and God Saves, David tells us. You know, it's interesting. He saves the best to last, really, doesn't he? He announces that God is the one that he waits in silence for. And then he ends the psalm trumpeting the fact of God's grace and his glory and salvation by his son. He speaks of how men are evil and how God does not lie. He loves truth and he sacrifices himself, his own son, that our salvation might be secure. Oh, to the Lord alone belongs steadfast love. And any love we have is but an echo by His grace of it. And then he adds these words that might at first trouble you. The last words of the song that leave you wondering. Now, now hold it, David, you're... You're not into works righteousness, are you? For you will render to a man according to his work. And so the last line is memorable and we're left chewing on that cud. He's telling us more about God. God is not a liar. God does not love untruth like the evildoers do. He's not bending moral reality. He deals justly and rightly with His creatures and that should be a comfort and encouragement to us. Not because you and I are so good and just and right and deserve the reward of salvation, but rather that we, as objects of His loving kindness, as objects and beneficiaries of His steadfast love and grace, we can be absolutely sure that His love will never change. 
Because His love is based upon truth and the right righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the man. That is the man to whom God renders all that He deserves. His active obedience as well as His passive dying for our sins. And I lie in my bed at night and Satan whispers in my ear and he says, you have done all of these things wrong. And the psalmist sings, thank God that He will never deny His Son. You remember Augustine. Command what you will and give what you command. And that is precisely what He has done in the Incarnation and the Atonement. He has given Jesus to us and for us that our salvation might never be shaken and might never be lost. Well, how then shall we live? What are we to do? For God alone, my soul waits in silence. You know, whenever my mother said something to me once, I I knew I should pay attention. But if she repeated it two or three times, you know, if I if I didn't do what she said, my father had this belt. The most fearsome words in our home were, just wait until your father gets home. Here David tells us under inspiration repeatedly, my soul waits for God alone in silence. And so he's hitting you on the head with a ball-peen hammer, trying to get your attention that you might learn how to live the Christian life. How are we then to live in a fallen world when God is so great and so good? We are to wait on the Lord. And we are specifically to wait on Him in silence. You see, because He can do what you cannot do. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. There's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. There's no other one in whom you can have hope and find yourself and your life and your purpose and have proper dreams fulfilled. Wait in silence before Him as you pray And as you worship, He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. You see, He promises that if you wait on Him, you will not be moved. Wait in silence, He says, for your refuge is in Him. On God, verse 7, rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. You get not just a firm place to stand. You get a little glory in the whole thing too. Not for your pride, 
But oh, the blessing of being in the glow of His great work. It is a privilege and an honor from outside. Verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us all. And then he has a shalah, probably a little musical interlude, just a little hors d'oeuvre to wet your palate and cause you to think and feel and muse over the importance of that truth. Wait in silence, trusting in him with your whole heart, David exhorts you. And then wait in silence, praying to him in your time of need. He goes on, and verse 9 he says, Those of lowest state are but a breath. Those of higher state are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. David tells you, do not trust in men. I don't care whether they are the low men of the town I don't care whether they're the great men of the town, whether they're low or high, it makes no difference. They are lightweights. They are but a breath. This is an allusion to the the method of weights and measures in the day against the backdrop of the whole Egyptian um, conception of the afterlife and judgment where someone is weighed. And they are found wanting. Wait in silence, David is telling you. Not trusting in men. Wait in silence. Also, not trusting in extortion, in verse 10, or robbery. The ways of evil men will not accomplish for you what you need. They are but vanity. Instead, David calls you to open your eyes and not your mouth. To open your eyes and see that God is the one who has the power and the grace. That He has loving kindness. That He is just and good. And that by His grace, amazingly, you can too. You see, it will not always be this way. You will one day, my brother and my sister, be utterly transformed. You will one day be all that you pray that you can be. With regard to ethics, you will never again disobey your Heavenly Father. With regard to morals, everything will be impeccable. You will be in an outward right relationship with God and man. You will live together on the new heavens and new earth at peace with your neighbor. You know you'll never move his boundary and never want to. Such a wicked thought will never cross your mind. You'll be too busy praising the Lord and rejoicing in Him and living like Christ, your brother and your friend. Oh, by His grace, you shall yet be like Him. Not that you will ever be God. No, you are not God. 
But you are united by faith and by the Spirit to the very Son of God incarnate. And all of His grace and blessings are showered upon you through that beautiful union and communion which we will spend eternity trying to experience and understand. And so now, trust in Him and seek after Him. Think about Him like David. Feel about Him like David. Sing about Him like David. And step out and live like Christ our Lord by His grace. And you will know the blessings of heaven even now in brokenness and pain. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that our souls might wait before You in silence, that we might show love and honor and deference to You because You are power and You are good incarnate. We thank You that You are also one who has chosen to show loving kindness to us in Christ. We thank You for the very blessings of heaven that come in Him. Help us to live in Him, to walk in Him, Help us to die and rise again in Him. And we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.